Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Jessica's always saying that there's a part of you that just always wants to um, kind of turn off what's happening in the outside world. But they're also sports are also such a reflection of what is happening in the outside world. And I think that one of the things that we've learned in in writing this book is to not be as judgmental toward other sports fans, but also toward ourselves. Like it is okay to have these dilemmas and still love your team. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week I speak to two sports writers, Jessica Luther and Kavita Davidson, about their new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan. Also, I've got some choice words about the NFL. Just stand up and just sit down awards and more. But first, let's talk to Jessica and Kavita about their new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. Jessica and Kavita, I, I, I got to know, uh, first and foremost, before we talk about the content, um, what was the process like writing the book with a co-author? And uh, would you do it again? <laughs> Jeez, Dave, right off the bat. Uh, the process, I mean, anyone who's read the book, each chapter is a different theme in sports. So in that way, it wasn't difficult to divide up the work, right? Like, you could, one of us could tackle an issue um, pretty thoroughly. And then we passed the chapters back and forth a fair amount. We had a really great editor on the book who was also involved in the whole process. And then we collaborated on the introduction and the conclusion uh, and, you know, figuring out the order of the chapters. And yeah, I think, yeah, I like working with other people. I've collaborated a lot in in my career. And I really feel like I would never have been able to write this book on my own. The topic is so sweeping. Uh, There are definitely chapters that Kavitha mainly crafted that I could never have written. I don't know enough about it, and I'm not smart enough in those areas. So I think the book is a lot stronger because there were two of us. I think Jessica's being extremely generous in how she says that. I am notorious for not being able to meet deadlines. Um, And Jessica and our editor, uh, Casey, were both extremely patient with me um, on that on that front. But like like Jessica said, I think that we have similar interests, but also different areas of expertise. And I learned so much from the chapters that Jessica wrote. Um, and this was the first time that I've ever really written something with somebody else. So that was definitely a learning process. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't like, like Jessica said, this book would not have gotten done without, without both of us. Um, I definitely would not have been able to write this book on my own. And I'm, I'm grateful for that, for that collaborative process. Now you both have been uh, sports fans for most of your life. 
Um, when did you have the moment as either a teen or a young adult where you thought, okay, something is not quite kosher about this industry? I think for me, it's always been about my identity. <laughs> um, and I hate using that word because of how it's been co-opted. But, um, you know, so much of my being a sports fan has been about my relationship to my city and my, you know, growing up in, in New York and and my hometown. And so much of the pushback has been against my, like, being an American, <laughs> even though I'm born here. Um, I just, I... I I've I've had so many instances where people have, you know, called me a terrorist or like looked at me and said that I can't possibly know anything about sports. And I always I always bring up the one comment that I always remember getting when I like first started professionally writing about sports. And it was it was on a probably the least controversial column that I've ever written in my life about how Derek Jeter was just great. Um, he was great to watch. He was fun and and that kind of thing. Um, and the comment was something to the effect of Kavitha. Now I understand why I disagree with everything you write. You're 25. I was 25 at the time. I'm not 25 now. You're 25 and you're the daughter of Indian immigrants who probably only know cricket, um, which I wrote in the column as like a, a touching thing to demonstrate how I came to love baseball, despite not having the familial connection. Um, and and he also said, how did you get this job writing about American sports other than affirmative action? And that was that was kind of the moment where I was like, oh, OK, like this is not a space that is meant for me or that a lot of people think is for me. And I think that that's that's kind of something that I've carried with me um, ever since. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a good question. And I you asking about being a teenager made me think that I played middle school basketball. I was, I think I was probably six feet tall then. Um, and I think I was probably hyper aware of how different the girls team was from the boys team. I can't remember that specifically in my, when I'm trying to recall it, but I am sure that those things were in place at the time and that all of the girls on my team were aware of them. But certainly as an adult, you're as a woman who likes sports, you're constantly being reminded that you're not supposed to. I mean, this is a huge dynamic with my husband and I. He doesn't care about sports at all. And whenever someone tries, especially men, it's mainly men, uh, try to talk to him about sport, he always <laughs> redirects them. He's like, please go talk to my wife. Like, I don't I don't know anything about this. And then they often don't want to. Right. Like, that's not actually a conversation or they don't trust uh, that that that's true about me, even when they find out that I write about sports. So I do think that that's just a common refrain when you are someone who doesn't look like what people imagine a sports fan to look like. Now, I know, Jessica, you were a big uh, Florida State fan uh, when you went there. And was was there ever a moment in in uh, cheering for that team? where you felt uncomfortable or you felt like, okay, something's wrong with the dynamics that are set up here? Yeah. I, Dave knows this too well. I wrote a book about college football and sexual assault for Dave's imprint at Akashic about four years ago, and there was a lot about Florida State. At one point, it was so much about Florida State that I had to walk it back. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. I like. That's a good question. 
for a long time, I didn't have any issue. And I can remember very much being, I mean, I only applied to go to Florida State. It was the only school I wanted to go to for college. And it was so I could watch Florida State football games. Like that was, that was my college experience. And I can remember being the fan who would sort of push away all of the critique. I didn't want to hear it. I didn't believe it. Bobby Bowden was a good guy. The system is fine. Uh, all these sorts of things. And it's really only been, I would say, in the last 10 years or so, as I've developed as a critical sports fan in general, that I've really had to come to terms with issues that I have around college football in general, um, you know, specifically how they handled, handled gendered violence, but things around brain trauma and not paying players and all these sorts of things. But then, I mean, we write about it explicitly. Look, the, they're the Florida State Seminoles, and I have become really comfortable over the last decade with the symbol for the team, which is, it's actually, we know exactly who it is. It's a, well, I think they maybe changed the face as it gets a man's profile and it used to be based on this very famous on campus music professor this very white guy that they just used his profile because of his nose and then put red paint on it for the image and I've gotten rid of everything in my house that has that image on it in the last five to seven years and just stuff like the tomahawk chop and you know, the fight song has like a cheer where you scalp them. And I used to be like when I was at Florida State, I was a orientation leader and I'd get up on the chairs and sing the song, you know, and I just at the time I didn't even think about it. So, yeah, it's been a big reckoning for me in the last decade or so. Wow. Now, um, you're both sports writers of great note and uh, sports enthusiasts. Was was you, you've been planning this book now for several years, and it took you know time to put it out. Did either of you have a breaking point moment or an aha moment where you said, "You know what? This is the next project I need to do because of this issue." You mean for this book? Was there an aha moment that we need to do it, or yeah. the next thing? No, oh, for, for this, this particular book, was there anything oh, yeah. on the sports landscape that you said we need we need to have a critical look about loving sports when they don't love you back? It's but, funny that this book is so of the time right now because we definitely didn't plan it. Um, I think the, you know, the athlete activism chapter is extremely timely mm -hmm. um, and always has been in. I mean, Dave, you've spoken and written so eloquently about that. I, I actually remember being in front of 345 Park and watching you in, uh, take the mic in the middle of a crowd and, and talk about Colin Kaepernick. Um and definitely using that as inspiration for um, for a lot of this book. But I think Jessica did the the media representation chapter. And just from a personal standpoint, watching that come together um, was was so meaningful. And that chapter is not representative of all the other chapters that we write about because it's so in some ways, navel-gazing and inward-looking, but it is a table-setter, I think, because the way that these issues are um, is presented to fans and to the general public is, is how we're all going to ever consume them, right? And who presents those issues um, matters. And 
I think that that was, you know, that was kind of the, like, reading that chapter and and helping to edit that chapter was definitely um, a a really cathartic process for me that, um, you know, that we're, we're all, we're all kind of looking at these things from such different lenses. At the same time, the unifying lens of sports is what we're trying to get at in this book. Um, and, and yeah, like that, that was a chapter for me that was just personally, um, very affecting. Mm. You know, we started this book kind of on a lark. I, it was like, I had this idea brewing from a friend who had sort of handed it to me that I should do something on sports and culture and issues in sport. And that was like sitting with me and, you know, a lot of that work has been done and it's very good. I mean, Dave, your book Game Over was a real model for me in a lot of ways uh, in this uh, in this area. But then Kavitha and I were joking at one point. There was those articles uh, that exist, I think, mainly around the Super Bowl that are like they're geared towards women. They write them a lot in women's magazines about how to talk to your boyfriend during the Super Bowl when you don't know anything about football uh, that are always incredibly condescending. And there's always a, a recipe for a dip, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's be like football 101 terms. And of course, there are people that that applies to. But there's always an imagined fan. And that imagined fan is not us. And so we were joking at one point about writing the opposite of that, right? Like for someone like me who lives with a man who doesn't care about sports, right? Like how to talk to your boyfriend when he doesn't know anything about football. And it got morphed over time into this much more serious journalistic uh, project in, in large part thanks to our editor Casey at the University of Texas Press but I don't know if there was I'm trying to remember if there was like a good aha moment for the creation of the book I kind of want to give Casey credit like he has believed in this book from the second that it was suggested out of my mouth the in a way that made me believe that it was important and I feel like maybe we should just give him credit for that because this certainly wouldn't exist without him and and that enthusiasm. Yeah, I'm so jealous because I know what it's like to have unenthusiastic editors or people who just sort of <laughs> do a project and say, I'll see you in six months. So that, that that's wonderful. I'm so glad you had that experience. Um, I, I devoured the book and... Um, all the issues therein from stadium construction to racist mascotting to uh, the Olympic destruction of cities to doping to lack of representation in sports media. It, it just leads me to this question. Now that you've gone through this project, um, is it possible to be an ethical sports fan? <laughs> We've been asked this um, a lot. And I, I think yes, because what I'll say is that if you can't be an ethical sports fan, you just can't be an ethical person. Like all of the things that we discuss in this book are problems with society, are problems with the country, are problems with the world. Um, and, you know, if if I can't still be an ethical sports fan while thinking of all of these things, that means I can't be an ethical music listener. That means I can't watch movies with a certain actor or director behind them. Um you know, I certainly can't be an ethical voter. <laughs> um, there, you know, 
and and I think what what we took so much out of working on this book, and I don't mean to speak for Jessica in this, but we've again talked about this so much that I I, I feel comfortable doing so, is to try not to be judgmental of the ethical sports fan, um, and to sit with the discomfort of of being that sports fan of the fact that it's okay to love these these teams and these games and in whatever capacity you do um, and still think about all of these other gross things that are happening at the same time. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with Kavitha that they're like, what does it mean to be ethical in a capitalist society, a racist society, a white supremacist society? I mean, how do you function at all in an ethical way when all the forces around you are so, unethical at the same time i kind of my answer to your question is an i don't know like can can you be an ethical consumer i honestly am not sure and i think what we want people when they read this book we want them to be asking these questions like that is a big takeaway is like kavitha said sitting in the discomfort uh, recognizing that these systems are really messed up and on some level, I think people will feel implicated as fans and consumers when they read some of these chapters, and probably they should. And I hope that they do. Like, I, I hope that it does make people uncomfortable and questioning their ethics. And, but yeah, I, I ultimately, I'm not sure what it means to be an ethical sports fan. Do you think fans? In, in this, you know, in this, uh, in this sports world, in this athletic industrial complex, do you think fans have agency that they can play a meaningful role in changing some of the problems that you describe or are fans almost by definition passive in their consumption of sports? I, I very much think that fans have agency. Um, I think that often we overstate the capacity for, not just fans, but just consumers in general to vote with their dollars. But I mean, Dave, you know, I have a sports business background and I always look at what the hashtag brands are doing. And Jessica sent me um, a study recently from Nielsen, from Nielsen Sports, that gauged fan interest in Black Lives Matter. And they broke it down by fans of various sports. And the numbers are staggering, frankly. And I pay attention to those numbers more than I pay attention to NBA ratings because, frankly, television ratings are such an um, anomalous beast, especially in 2020. Um, but one of the numbers that stood out to me was the majority of self-proclaimed sports fans, like actual avid sports fans, think that it is... Like, first of all, support Black Lives Matter, um, support athletes' right to publicly support Black Lives Matter, but also support teams and companies supporting Black Lives Matter. And that's why you see FedEx, you know, pushing for a name change in Washington. And that's why you see Nike putting out commercials with Colin Kaepernick and Serena Williams that's actually state Black Lives Matter. And listen, I'm an extremely cynical person. I understand that they're trying to sell products and that those ads are effective. 
But the fact that those ads are effective is a reflection of us. It's a reflection of where we are going with our, you know, popular sentiment. Um, and to have corporate entities recognize that finally is only a good thing. Um, and we we did that, right? Like they didn't just like suddenly wake up and decide, hey, like it's good business that Black Lives Matter. They saw where the writing on the wall was and they saw where the money is being spent. So, you know, as gross as that is and like within our, our capitalist system, I, I still do believe in our capacity as fans individually to um, to change things in that way. Mm. Yeah, I think, so one of the things about the book is that the issues that we're dealing with are giant systemic issues, as Kavitha said earlier, within society and certainly reflected uh, in sport. And you know, there's always a feeling of, well, I don't always, but for me, it does seem whenever you're going up against a giant system or institution or machine that's been in place for a really long time, it, it does feel like what can the individual do, right? They're often crushed under the wheels. And at the same time, we wouldn't have written this book if we didn't feel like individuals could do something about it. And maybe those are small things. Um, each person is only just a person. And at the... But still, how you relate to sports matters. I know that even in my own life, people around me have definitely changed their opinions on a lot of things watching my own career and the things that I write about. And I, you know, how much does stuff trickle up is a huge question. But certainly in some ways it it works, right? I mean, just this summer, I don't know if we're going to get to it, but the Washington NFL team changed their name and they should have done it decades ago when Native and Indigenous people asked them to, but I interviewed a couple Native women right after it happened, and they gave a ton of credit to the Black Lives Matter movement, and there was this huge momentum of of that FedEx in general, and spe specifically FedEx, could not ignore, and therefore the team could not ignore, and that matters. Like, that is how that change finally came to be. It took a mass movement and it took a lot of people collectively doing it together in a very particular moment. But that was, you know, FedEx and the Washington NFL team weren't coming to that on their own, just like Kavitha said. Yeah, that that actually was a question I was going to ask you because it, you know, relates to the chapter on racist mascotting and it's a it's a complicated answer because th there's so so many factors that took place from the activists who've been working on that issue for decades to of course you know the the intervention of the black lives matter movement into discussions about racism and i've had the same experience talking to some of um these long-term indigenous activists that they say yeah it's the intervention of the movement that made the corporations uncomfortable uh with having this racist name but you know, but because, you know, we had those ideas out there for so many decades, it, it put that on the table in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And frankly, the work's not done. I think that yeah. sometimes when we achieve something like that, like it was stunning to me. The only word I can use is stunning when I saw that alert and I texted Jessica immediately um, one that, oh, my God, this is amazing. Thank God for this you know, this change. And then frankly, you know, what does this mean for our chapter? Um, and then, you know, once the dust settles, 
there's still the tomahawk chop. There's still the Kansas City chant. You know, there's still the the Cleveland baseball team. Like, there's still so much work to be done. And that's just on a sports front, let alone the work to be done for actual indigenous people's rights um, beyond beyond the names in sports. Um, and this is just one step. And it took so long for this one step. I think that that's, that's the bittersweet nature of this is that like we celebrate the smallest amount of change that is monumental actually because of how long and how much work it took to get this done. But then you look at how much more work there is um, ahead of you and and then it can kind of seem a little bit overwhelming. And I think that li- again, like living with that discomfort is also a part of, of being a sports fan and just being a conscientious person in general. Mm. Yeah. I want to say that the illuminatives had a, tweet i feel like this is where i saw it that said there's something like 80 plus high schools in the u.s that still use the r word Mm -hmm. as their mascot right that this is functioning on a lot of different levels and that there is just so much more work to be done i it's a huge deal i mean i think we write in the book that we didn't expect to see this change dan snyder very famously dug his heels in just a few years ago on this so i mean what a Man, thank goodness, finally, at the same time, yeah, as Kavitha said, there's so far to go. And in in large part because we still think of Native and Indigenous people um, in really racist and stereotypical ways that stretch back centuries. So that's, again, just this huge issue within our society that we're just seeing reflected in sports. Mm. Now, we just talked about uh, fans and agency. Um, do athletes have agency? And I want to be really specific with this question because I, I don't mean do they have agency in terms of doing what we've recently seen in terms of using their platform to stand up against uh, police violence or or other issues. Um, I mean, do, can you see athletes having agency in turning sports in a more equitable direction? Because while we see athletes using their platform, I don't know an example other than the WNBA and Senator Kelly uh, Loeffler or maybe the NBA and Donald Sterling of them trying to take like the actual sports world into their hands and make that world more equitable on questions of stadium funding, all the stuff that you write about in the book. Um, Do you think athletes have agency or are they viewed too much as uh, disposable labor? I, so I don't think that they have agency with stadium subsidies, frankly, (laughs) um, like that particular issue is just bigger than individual or collective action from, from the labor force. But I mean, and Jessica talks about this very eloquently about how college athletes on the one hand, we're, we're, I think that's obviously the next sea change that we're going to see. Um, But there's so much turnover there that it's it's difficult to predict where that movement is going but i i do think that as a labor force um athletes realizing just how much power that they have and in an odd way all of the the weirdness around coronavirus and around the shutdown has reinforced how much power these athletes have because all that they have heard, all that we have heard, and definitely all that um, television and marketing companies have heard for the last five, six months is 
how much money is is built on the backs of these athletes and these players um, and how much money these entities stand to lose if they don't go to work, essentially. Um, so I do think that there is a capacity for these athletes to have agency. And I think that we're seeing the realization of that um, in a way that we've really never seen before. I mean, I, I know that a lot of us might have hoped that um, this most recent NBA and WNBA and then down the line, the trickle down effect walkout would have lasted longer. But it, at the very least, it shows how much of a freak out, like how much how much of an impact that kind of thing can have. So imagine, you know, the gears that are turning on the college on the college sports side when Trevor Lawrence and a bunch of athletes are throwing in, uh, you know, forming a players association, forming a union into a list of demands um, in order to play. I, I, I do think that we are we are seeing that tide change right now. <laughs> we just saw Nick Saban leading a <laughs> march, which is like, my goodness. Yeah. I do think in general in the U.S. we're really bad about labor. I don't think I need to tell you this, Dave. So on some level, yeah, they are disposable labor. And we have a really specific ownership structure in the U.S. that in sports that uh, and reinforces that in, in ways that I think are really hard to overcome for for athletes. But at the same time, we did just see what collective action can do. And the WNBA... I mean, we should just be giving them mm-hmm. props left and right just constantly. And it's not like they came to this overnight. It's not like their organizing was all of a sudden and at once. I mean, they've been working towards this for many, many years. And it is really something to watch them. How do they get the shirts? Like, I just don't even understand how they like all got off the bus with the vote Warnock shirts. Like they just have everything sort of in place in a way that is breathtaking. And I and I hope that other, especially professional unions, are taking note of of how much work they put into it and how and what that can look like. I do want to add to your list, Dave, uh, and I want to add the Williams sisters, especially. Serena, but Venus too. I mean, what we've seen in tennis over the last two decades has been shocking. Like, talk about a much more inclusive sport, a very white sport that does not look very white anymore, especially in the United States, which, you know, how do we like put our finger on exactly all the things that the Williams sisters did to make that happen? Part of it was they just persevered. in a sport that didn't want them to, and they dominated and people couldn't look away. But I do think we've seen, and that again is a very individualized sport. So it functions in a different way, but that the U S open this year just looks so different than it ever looked in my childhood. And I really feel like we can just point to those two women uh, as the reason that that we see so much more inclusivity in within tennis. And and Jessica and I talk about the Williams sisters as such a formative part of our fandoms. And frankly, like neither of us know tennis without Serena and Venus, you know, which is a 
I think a, a weird thing to say to a lot of long, longer standing tennis fans um, or older tennis fans, but what Venus has done, not just for equal pay in tennis or equal pay in sports, but just for the notion that women should be paid the same in in the country for whatever work that they do is really transcendent. And it is also kind of a sad reflection on American society that the strongest unions and the strongest labor forces that we see with all of with all of the entities acting against them are in sports, right? Like we we constantly say that, you know, probably the last couple of years notwithstanding, um, the strongest example of a labor union is the MLBPA. And that's ridiculous, right? Like <laughs> we can all agree that, you know, we shouldn't be looking to sports unions as a model for how labor should work in the country. Mm. And of course, just to say, as we're doing this podcast today at 2 p.m., Serena Williams and Sloan Stevens are facing off. Yeah. Just speaks, yeah. To, speaks to your point. Um, I, I, I did want to ask you, uh, Kavita, you, you touched on this, but I'd be remiss if I didn't have you on the show, given the chapter that you have about athletes and activism, um, of your thoughts about the strikes that took place last week, these wildcat strikes against racism that seemed to spread through sports so quickly. That was, to me, the most significant and, I'm sure, for the sports bosses, alarming part of it. Like, just the rapidity with which it made its way through the different leagues, um, starting, of course, with the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, what, were your th- what were your thoughts, particularly in relation to your book and the chapter you have on athlete activism? What were your thoughts when that was taking place? I mean, first, the the domino effect, like you said, the rapidity with which every other league except the the, the, the NHL and eventually the NHL um, followed suit was remarkable to see within hours, right? Um, the The way that these players took what was righteous and understandable anger and emotion and turned it into actual action um, was really quite striking to see, um, no pun intended. And then we got the uh, the very predictable, well, you know, condescending, these guys don't know what they're actually asking for. And, you know, this is just, you know, they're, they're throwing a hissy fit. They're just doing a demonstration. They're not like, this isn't going to lead to any actual change. But the Milwaukee Bucks refused to leave their locker room until they got on the phone with the Wisconsin AG and the lieutenant governor of that state. And they asked them, what can we ask for that is tangible? In addition to all of the things, by the way, that they're already doing with voter registration drives and, um, you know, trying to overturn some of the voter disenfranchisement in Florida with um, with convicted felons and things like that. Um, and that has led to opening up arenas um, for for as as polling places, um, as voting um, as voting places, um, and and forcing their owners to actually put their money where their mouth is. And I think that that's that might not be something that we see um, bear fruit in the next couple of months. But I think that that is something that they're going to continue to. Um, keep their foot on the pedal for in in 
the coming years because, you know, there there is so much power that exists within these owners. There's obviously a lot of money. And it, it was really stunning to me to see the demand from the people who can very much enact change um, at the top uh, could, you know, come, come to bear it. I, I, I almost am at a loss for words because again, I think that you can take the very cynical route, which is they could have actually like walked out of the bubble and they could have like stopped playing basketball and all that. And I think that that's a much easier thing for us to say when we're, when we're sitting in, in home and, and kind of coming up with our wish list of, um, of, of labor rights and things like that. But to to actually see this happen, like as you said, Dave, like this is this is the most stark example that I have ever seen in my lifetime of this kind of action, and I think it's only going to continue to build. And again, I think that it's just um, it's it's a demonstration of these players realizing the actual power that they have. I I mean, I was surprised as hell. I. You know, there were all the rumors going into that day. And then as soon as I saw that they weren't coming out of the locker room, like I turned on NBA TV, which I was not going to do <laughs> uh, up until that point, in part because I wanted to see if it was true, what the reporting was. And then I wanted to watch to see how the media was going to handle it. Um, credit to the NBA TV. They, they did a pretty good job overall. Uh, but I didn't. So on some level, I was really surprised that it was actually happening because I have never seen that in my lifetime and I wanted it. Like I, I wanted them to do it. I, uh, you know, they, that was for me, they were on the right side there. And at the same time, I've got to say there was something that felt inevitable about it, that we were always going to get there. And that's a weird tension I think to hold, but what's been building over the last six months, the last six years, the last 60 years, uh, you know, everything has really come to a head during the pandemic in a way that we haven't seen in a, in a long time. And so the fact that this happened uh, with collective action in sport made sense in a lot of ways. And man, I'll just say like, I've been feeling all the negative things, uh, especially in the last few months I felt hope and inspiration and that felt foreign <laughs> in, in my chest. And I'm with Kavita. Like there is a, yeah, a part of me wanted them to do something like bigger and longer and walk out of the bubble and do all those things at the same time. They're just people navigating this system that is not set up for any of this. And, and like we said, they, it's not as if they've been doing, they weren't planning it. That was clear, right? They haven't been planning this for months and, and then decided to do this. So, uh, I, I think I feel a lot of different things about this, but I do try to remember how exactly I felt on that Wednesday, watching it all unfold, especially, you know, I didn't know what the W was going to do. And I actually don't know whether or not them playing or not playing mattered because of all the other activism that they were doing. But for them to say we're standing in solidarity alongside was very powerful. Uh, but man, when I've got to say when the Milwaukee Brewers didn't go mm -hmm. out, I don't know a ton about baseball. Kavitha knows this better than anyone in the whole world. I don't know a ton about baseball, but like I did not think baseball would do it. Uh, that was 
man, how did this happen? I don't the know. The Brewers, the Mariners, the Padres, the Giants. Like we we saw three baseball game baseball, you know. Um, and I to Jessica's point, this was not planned, and I think that that added to the power for me is that this was such a human reaction. Basically, you know, we later found out the Bucks were planning to play that game. They got to the arena and George Hill and a couple of other players just were, did not feel right about it. And that's totally understandable. And I think that one of the things that we, we try to convey in the book. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is that these are human beings, you know, we, we mythologize these athletes because they do these superhuman things that none of us can can even dream of doing. But they're still they're human beings. And especially in the NBA, these are black men in America. Um, and you like they can't separate that from from themselves. I shameless plug just did an episode uh, a few days ago about Jamal Murray. And one of the things that um, the reporter said to us about Jamal was he took everything that was happening with Jacob Blake and channeled it onto the court. And that is completely different than stick to sports or compartmentalizing, right? That is taking this, um, you know, this anger and, you know, the constant threat on your life and putting it towards something relatively productive. Um, and, and, that manifested in the Bucks walking out and then spurring every other team and almost every other league to follow suit. It really like I, I can't overstate how remarkable it was to watch that unfold. Yeah, it. I mean, for all of us, I mean, it was like history without a compass, just mm-hmm. no idea yeah, yeah. what this was. Very little in terms of any sort of historical precedent to work from. And still an, an open question about where it all goes. Um, I, I really want folks to get this book, uh, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. I want them to read it. I want them to debate it. I want them to have book groups about it. Is there anything else about the book that you want to add uh, before we, we call it a day? Is there anything else, any, any pitch you want to make for why this book matters? <laughs> um, I... I think that we we try really hard to explore the gray area. So much of sports is black and white. No, honestly, no pun intended. But, you know, there's a winner and a loser. There's a score. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's very easy um, in some ways to be a sports fan, but it's also really difficult. And the gray area is is what we really try to to dive into in this book. And that also means that, you know, we acknowledge that we are gigantic sports fans. Listen, sports are fun. Um, Jessica's always saying that, you know, there's, there's a part of you that just always wants to um, kind of turn off what's happening in the outside world. But they're also, sports are also such a reflection of what is happening in the outside world. And I think that one of the things that we've, learned in in writing this book is to not be as judgmental toward other sports fans but also toward ourselves like it is okay to have these dilemmas and still love your team or still love your player and um and and sitting with that is uh is a is a hard realization so that's 
you know, I think that that is the main takeaway. Um, sports do so much good. They do so much harm. Um, and I think that that's just true of almost everything in our lives. Mm. Yeah. And I feel like, especially people who are listening to this podcast, like they will feel seen in this book. We've had a lot of people say like, thank you. Like this reflects so much of my own conflict. And there's something about when you, you feel kind of gross about something, but you don't know if other people feel that way. And like, should you feel this way? Is it okay? Is it okay to feel this conflict, but also watch the sports? And I do think that this book allows for both. I mean, the first two words of it are loving sports in the title, right? Like we deeply love sports at the same time. You can be critical of it and you should. I mean, I think you should be critical of it. And I think a lot of people are going to see themselves reflected back in this book in a way that makes them feel better about that conflict. Well, I certainly felt that when I was reading it, no doubt about it. Um, and I think that that's a huge underserved part, part of the uh, sports fan market is people who do love sports but feel like they don't love them back. Um Hey, I really want to thank you both so much. Kavita Davidson, Jessica Luther, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Dave. And thank you for your work, Dave. Like, I feel like our book is absolutely like a Dave's Iron legacy in a lot of ways. So Honestly, it's really like, great to be here. Yeah, I, I, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass or anything, but... Um, watching you on TV and speaking about some of these issues has definitely emboldened me and and I'm I'm sure Jessica um who has worked with you more directly in being able to be that conscientious sports fan. So well now you're making me all dusty in here. So <laughs> it's getting dusty. Well I mean that that's such an honor to, uh to even hear you say that and it's I don't think it's even deserved because th this book is just uh so good and it, it stands on its own two feet as something that I think is going to really mark this time in which we live. I really do. People are going to say 2020 sports and they're going to look at this book. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And um, that's it. We'll be back right after this on the Edge of Sports podcast after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, uh, The Nation magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the National Football League. Okay, I can't say it's not a satisfying sight. Roger Goodell and the National Football League are tap dancing as fast as they can, desperate to avoid a player's strike against racism one week out from the start of the season. The league has seen every major sports federation, the NBA, the WNBA, MLB, MLS, even the NHL, cancel games because of player outrage after yet another police shooting, this time of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. 
Goodell and his fraternity of NFL owners are working overtime to show that they understand players' concerns and want the league to be a force for racial justice. This is the same league, of course, that exiled Colin Kaepernick after the 2016 season because he dared take a knee during the national anthem to demonstrate against police impunity. The same league whose franchise owners provided Donald Trump with millions of dollars during the 2016 campaign. The same league that brought in Jay-Z to tell the world, and particularly the players, that, quote, we've moved past kneeling. Amazing how the balance of power has changed almost overnight. All it took was a combination of the largest national demonstrations in the history of the United States, and more critically, the very real threat that the players, even with their short playing careers and non-guaranteed contracts, might sit out the games. Just take a look at what the NFL is currently doing to demonstrate its sincerity to players, even if it upsets a Trump and a section of its fan base. Goodell has announced that end racism and it takes all of us will be stenciled in the end zones of all stadiums. Week one games will begin with, in addition to the national anthem, the song that is known as the black national anthem, lift every voice and sing. Decals with political slogans will be allowed on helmets. Voting drives will be a part of the league's initiatives. Goodell has even said that he wishes, quote, we had listened earlier to what Kaepernick was trying to bring attention to when he began kneeling during the national anthem in 2016, and he wants to encourage a team to sign the exiled quarterback. In addition, teams are putting out their own statements that call for police accountability, voting drives, and even legislation to deal with the reality that police exist above the law. Anti-racist authors are being brought in to speak to team executives. Everything short of Jerry Jones coming out in a dashiki and leading a team study group in Go Tell It on the Mountain. The question, of course, is whether this will achieve the goal of making sure that no games have to be canceled. NFL Executive Vice President of Football Operations Troy Vincent has said that players have the choice to sit out games and can do so without threat of reprisals. This is likely a way to prevent entire teams from acting in unison and instead present protest as the symbolic action of an individual player, making sure that the games get played, even if a couple of players take Sunday off. Excuse my cynicism, but the overwhelming majority of the league's revenue doesn't flow from fans buying $9 beers and big foam fingers. It comes from multi-billion dollar television deals with the networks and ESPN. The NFL is by far the most popular sport in the land, and if its players, 70% of whom are black, decide that the money will stop flowing, then that's exactly what is going to happen. It's not just the players who are realizing their power, but Goodell and friends are realizing that the players are realizing their power. Where this goes is anyone's guess. Much of it tragically depends less on the league's efforts at window dressing than on whether the police or their extrajudicial militia arm that Trump is empowering in the streets commit another atrocity, create another hashtag, and demonstrate yet again the depths of the violent crisis gripping this country. If that happens, Dan Snyder wearing a kente cloth just isn't going to cut it. One thing is certain, Roger Goodell is absolutely right when he said that they should have listened to Colin Kaepernick. If only their biggest worry was the specter of a player taking a knee. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. 
Hey, everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show that I call Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week. Stand up! I got to give it to Chris Paul, uh, the point guard for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Not only did he lead the NBA in clutch points this season, not only did he come painfully close to unseating the utterly unwatchable Houston Rockets, But Chris Paul, the more we hear about what went on behind the scenes in the NBA and their wildcat strike against racism that took place the previous week, the more you understand that Chris Paul, as head of the union, was negotiating and trying to balance a lot of different interests behind the scenes. Players who wanted to play, players who didn't want to play, players who wanted to cancel the season, players who disagreed with the entire idea of the league being this political force. Chris Paul somehow was able to keep everybody united. Now, some people, of course, believe that the players should have stayed out uh, and canceled the entire playoffs. Um, Other people, of course, believe the opposite. But I got to give credit and love to Chris Paul, who's never been one of my favorite players, to be honest with you, uh, because he was somebody who I really think was able to manage uh, an incredibly difficult situation. And, you know, I got to just give him credit for that, that he stood up and he was stood tall when the moment demanded it. Now, if only his coach, Billy Donovan, had passed him the damn ball with 1.5 seconds left and his team down by two. That's a separate question. Uh, the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award Sit your ass down. has got to go to the Miami Heat. Uh, the Miami Heat are giving the police money. The Miami Heat are, let me say that again, are giving the police money. This is the headline. The Miami Heat, as part of an effort to combat racial bias, will pay to train City of Miami police officers and some civilians on how to improve interactions with the public, particularly minorities. Interesting word there, by the way, minorities, especially if you're talking about uh, the city of Miami. Who exactly is the minority there? Um, So the Miami Heat are, quote unquote, giving the police money amid calls to defund the police and in the aftermath of the players striking against police violence. I have to say, this is what happens when you see billionaire sports owners as coalition partners. This is what happens when you take the struggle away from what's animating it in the streets and put it in a direction that makes people feel safe with the status quo. Of course, it's a status quo that makes a lot of other people feel profoundly unsafe. Miami Heat, team owner Mickey Arison, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have this week, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much to Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson. Reminder that their book is called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan. Cannot recommend it enough. 
Thank you to everybody out there who's been listening to the show during pandemic time. Really appreciate the kind words that have been coming across. Uh, thank you so much to my producer, David Tigabu, always doing the bang up job. And so for everybody out there listening, wear your mask and please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't 
don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 